0: Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, my name is Amy Gunn, and today we are presenting my interview with Linda Dunikowski and Alan Levine, an episode that was recently recorded at the American College of Trial Lawyers Spring Conference. Linda Dunikowski was the lead prosecutor in the November 2021 murder trial of Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia. She secured guilty verdicts against all three defendants, Greg McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Roddy Bryan. Mr. Arbery was jogging through a neighborhood in southern Georgia on February 23, 2020, when he was chased in pickup trucks by the defendants, culminating in Travis McMichael shooting Mr. Arbery three times with a shotgun. Mr. Bryant captured much of the chase and murder on video. Linda Donikowski spent 17 years in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, where she tried over 90 felony cases to verdict. In 2019, she transferred to the Cobb County District Attorney's Office to be the senior assistant district attorney in the appellate division. It didn't take long, however, before she was asked to be on the Arby trial team, and in April 2021 was named the lead prosecutor. Linda received her undergrad degree from Indiana University and her J.D. from Georgia State University College of Law in 1993. Interestingly, however, instead of going to work in the law after graduation, Linda continued her pre-law school employment in trade show industry sales until 2002 and credits her motto of ABC, always be closing to that experience. Alan Levine is senior counsel in the Commercial Litigation, Securities and White Collar, and Regulatory Practice Group at Cooley in New York City, and a fellow with the American College of Trial Lawyers. Alan represented the plaintiffs in the federal civil jury trial of the white supremacist leaders and groups involved in the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. After a month-long trial in November 2021, the jury returned a verdict tolling $26 million under state conspiracy law against all defendants. Allen holds a BS from the University of Pennsylvania and a JD from New York University Law School. He served as an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York, where he played a key role in the investigation and prosecution of union corruption on the New York City waterfront. Since that time, Allen has represented public and private companies under criminal investigation or after indictment, as well as public and private companies in sensitive situations. Alan has been active in civic and community affairs throughout his career. From 2007 to 2010, Alan served as chairman of the board of the Legal Aid Society, the largest public law firm in the United States. He is currently chairman of the board of trustees of the Jewish Theological Seminary. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Alan and Linda. Hello, Linda and Alan.
1: How are you today? We're great. Thanks for having us.
0: I'm so excited to have the opportunity to speak with you all, especially being live and in the same room together, having just completed a couple of days of our spring seminar here in San Diego. On behalf of the American College, thank you so much for giving your time today and sharing your stories with our listeners. So Alan, I'd like to start with you if it's okay. Could you just give our listeners a little bit of background about the Charlottesville trial trial? that you and your colleagues conducted last fall, a little bit of background.
2: So in the summer of 2017, August 11th and 12th, the leaders, organizers, and supporters of the alt-right movement, which is a white nationalist movement in the United States, convened in Charlottesville for a weekend of rallies and violence. There was a Torch March rally, three, 400 white nationalists, descending on a Thomas Jefferson statue at the Rotunda, assaulting counter-demonstrators with lit torches. They had been chanting anti-Semitic rants for the whole torch march. There was Saturday uh, a rally that led to violence that this white nationalist had provoked, and then other acts of violence in the afternoon, including a car attack on peaceful counter-protesters. We brought a lawsuit on behalf of injured plaintiffs under the Ku Klux Klan Act and the state conspiracy hate crime statute. The trial was about charging them with racially motivated violence against race and religious minorities interfering with their constitutional rights. At a five-week trial in October and November in Charlottesville, and the jury returned a verdict of $26 million in compensatory and punitive damages against the individual leaders and organizers and their organizations of the white nationalist movement.
0: I know that several of the defendants had represented themselves.
2: Two did, yes.
0: And I can only imagine what that brought to the courtroom. Because those individuals were accused of the race crimes and the conspiracies. Had you ever been involved in a situation where a defendant had represented him or herself?
2: Actually, no. I would say that the presence of those two individuals, Chris Cantwell and Richard Spencer, in the courtroom examining the witnesses, confronting Their co-defendants, many of whom they didn't like and didn't like them, their disdain for the system, but also their desire to kind of impress the judge and try to get the judge on their side, a lack of understanding about timing and things. You know, at some points, I thought they were more interested in the show of the trial than the evidence and what the ultimate verdict was. So the two of them definitely changed what went on in the courtroom in a big way.
0: It was my understanding that those two were allowed to question the plaintiffs acting in their capacity as their own attorneys. How on earth did you prepare your clients for that kind of interaction?
2: That was very challenging work as trial lawyers. There was very significant age difference. Most of the plaintiffs were at UVA. A number of them weren't even 30 years old, and the defendants really zeroed in on the youngest of the plaintiffs. There's really no preparing a person for that kind of examination, but frankly, those plaintiffs did great. They stood up to it. They answered just the questions. None of them lost their cool. We were very proud of them.
0: Well, congratulations on that verdict and all the work that you've done and you and your colleagues have done for our country, really, in bringing to accountability that particular event. But I also want to ask you, Linda, who's involved in another very momentous verdict this past fall, the Ahmad Arbery case, You were the lead prosecutor, securing convictions of all three defendants, Greg McMichael, Travis McMichael, and Roddy Bryan. There's so much to be said about your work on that case. And here's my question, because I heard you speak yesterday, and it really was about, I'm a prosecutor. I have a statute, which is the law, elements that I have to prove. I bring facts and evidence to the case, and I Don't worry about themes. I don't worry about theories. I just present the evidence. And a lot of us are taught themes and theories and let's teach the jury rhymes and things like that. And you're just not about that. Is that something you learned along the way?
1: It's something I've learned along the way. And what I've learned is that you are not going to educate, and I say that in quotation marks, or change the mind of a juror during voir dire. And I was taught that in law school. Wadir is where you educate the jury. No, it's not. These people come in and they have their opinions. They have their explicit biases and implicit biases. They have their life experiences that they bring into the courtroom and their common sense with them. Often those people who are, I'll call them just socially struggling. And what I mean by that is someone who tells you that they're an aerospace engineer, but they're bagging groceries at Kroger, you've got to disconnect And when you look at that juror, something's not right with their world. Those are the kind of people you're looking for because there's something going on with them that tells you, I need to explore this further with this person. And those are sometimes the people you don't want on your jury. And you're never looking to select your jury. You're always looking to deselect those people who don't play well with others first off. You could get a juror back there, and I've had this happen. I had one case where I had a 30-something male juror in the back, and we had two women who were very concerned about the evidence and wanted to explore it more. And the other 10 were much like, he's guilty. Can we get on with this? And he called them stupid and morons. And there's no way for them to save face and change their opinion at this point. And the jury hung. I had no way of knowing that that young man was going to get so frustrated he would say that to those two ladies and hang a jury. So we had to try that case over again. In addition, you also have to look for those people who have a bias that they're not going to share with you. Unfortunately, I had a case, it was a tragic case. It was a deceased baby case, a baby homicide. The mother and the mother's boyfriend were on trial and we selected our jury and we had one young man who took over the jury And basically, it was mom's fault. Even though the boyfriend is the one who actually was the murderer and inflicted all the injuries to the baby, he blamed her for not protecting that child. And he didn't want to hold the actual murderer accountable. He wanted to hold her accountable. And it came from his own abuse having had a mother who didn't protect him from her boyfriends. There is no way to find that because that person is never going to share that during voir dire in front of 48 or 60 other jurors. And that once again resulted in a hung jury for us. So, Jury selection and that sort of analysis is really, really important to go and look for those people because it is a deselection process. Those people who are not going to get along with others, those people who have a hidden agenda. I call them the sleeper cell people, trying to find them and their implicit bias. Now, often you will have jurors who are more than happy to tell you exactly what their issues are, and they will raise their hand to every single question you ask. And you know, when they've got too much stuff to tell you, they're also not going to make a good juror. So it's that sort of analysis that you have to have.
0: The publicity in both of your cases, there was no way, I assume, there was no way to find anyone, any potential juror who hadn't heard something about your cases. So- you could certainly ask the standard questions of what have you heard? Tell me about it. Does it affect your ability to listen to law and facts? There's no way that can actually cover because it's not just I heard about this case. It's you can't have heard about your cases and not had feelings about them. You know, it's one thing just to have heard about a case and not really thought much of it. I don't know how you could have heard about the Ahmaud Aubrey case or the Charlottesville case and not had opinions about it beforehand. So how did you go about, in your case, Linda, finding the sleeper cells or trying to encourage people to be open and
1: honest about what their biases would be? Well, first off, we began with a question that I formulated, which was, what do you think you know about this case? Okay, Because we knew there had been pretrial publicity, We knew that the media had had extensive coverage. We knew that Greg McMichael had released the video to the media and numerous people had seen it. We wanted to know how many times someone had seen it, if it was something they sought out to look at repeatedly to analyze. We wanted to know where their information, their news media and information about the case came from. Because a lot of people in that questionnaire and I hate questionnaires. I think I've said that before. In our case, the questionnaire was used against very good jurors, and in an unfair way, in my opinion. It was one of those things where a juror, when interviewed personally one-on-one, said all the reasonable, rational, yes, I can be fair and impartial, and yes, I can be a juror who follows the law and listens to the evidence, even the defenses. And yet, if the defense didn't like them, they'd go, well, on their questionnaire, they said blah, 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 ignoring the hour we spent with them talking to them as a way to get rid of them. So that's one of the reasons I don't like questionnaires. But what we got from the questionnaire was a broad spectrum of things. Some people legitimately wrote, I heard in the news these things. Other people had formed an opinion. Some of them had written, and this was both white jurors and black jurors, this was a modern day lynching and they are guilty. So we would still call those people in to question them. The defense wanted to immediately strike them. Well, if they wrote that down, we have to strike them. I said, no. I said, I want them to come in. I want them to please explain to me why you wrote that down and what it is that is resting on your mind. A lot of people came in and honestly said, I have seen the video, I've seen it one too many times, and I really truly believe this. And they were honest about it. It wasn't something they were writing down to get out of jury service. Don't get me wrong, we had several people who did write down some really horrific things, strictly because they said, I don't want to be here and I don't want to do this. They didn't want to be on this jury. A number of people, though, wrote down what they thought they knew about the case. And a lot of times the facts were incorrect as to what our evidence was actually going to be at trial. And so we had to point out to them, what you think you know about the case you've gotten from the media and the media sometimes gets this wrong correct? And they all agreed with us. They went, yeah. And a lot of them started going, yeah, you know, I probably don't know everything. I probably don't have all the facts. And yeah, the media does get this stuff yeah, wrong. Yeah. And now that you mention it, I hate the media. Right. And they would then cross over to the, well, are you willing to listen to the evidence presented within these four walls and solely base your verdict on what you hear here? Yes, I'm willing to do that. Are you willing to follow the law that the judge gives you? Yes, I'm willing to do that. Hold the state to its burden to prove these charges to you beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes, I'm willing to do that. And in this particular case, we also asked a very important question, which is, are you willing to give meaningful consideration to both self-defense and citizen's arrest as a defense? And we did that with the caveat that the defense is not required to put up any evidence, but if they were, and to put up those defenses, would you consider them? And just about everybody said, oh yeah, I'd consider the defenses. I'd wanna hear what they are. We did have a couple people who went, no, I've seen the video, it's not self-defense. I would not even consider that. Right. So once we get to our 48, we have 12 African-American jurors and the rest are white jurors. So one quarter of our pool are African-American jurors. So we begin with silent strikes, which is where we pass the paper back and forth. The state goes first. You accept or reject. Then the defense goes. And when it comes to the end, the judge goes, is this your jury? And I said, no. Batson challenge. For the state, of course, it's a McCollum challenge, but the exact same thing. And so we went through that process because the defense had struck 11 of the 12 qualified African-American jurors. Didn't that just hurt your
0: heart a little bit?
1: I thought they were going to strike all of them. Okay. And so I was pleased that they at least kept the one older black man who was a great juror, but I was hopeful. There was hope that they would not strike everyone else, that there would be three or four African-American jurors on the jury. And that's what I was hoping that they would do, but they chose to do what they did.
0: Then it becomes your burden to prove that it was a race-motivated strike.
1: So actually, the first thing you do is math, which, of course, (laughs) we're lawyers. We love math. So (laughs) the first math is based on the numbers alone. And who they struck, which was 11 of the 12, did the state make a prima facie case of racial discrimination? And Judge Walmsley found that we had made that prima facie case of racial discrimination because there were 12 qualified African-American jurors and they struck 11 of them.
0: Okay. So it was just, at that point, it was just, it's 11 out of 12,
1: Judge. I mean, it's prima facie. Right. Okay. The next step, of course, is for the defense to provide race-neutral reasons for those particular strikes. And that's where the questionnaires come in. Right. Because, well, and also the intensive voir dire that we had done. Now, what I did was this. I did not ask to have every one of the 11 reseated. There were three African-American jurors where I knew that there was a different reason, a race neutral reason for them to strike them. And I got what that reason was. So I left those three people alone. But I did ask to reseat eight. Of the jurors. So those eight jurors, it was attorney Laura Hogue, who represented Greg McMichael, went through here's all of our race neutral reasons. And of course, she had pages of notes because we had extensively interviewed these jurors as well as their juror questionnaire. So the juror questionnaire was used as one part for some of them. Well, originally they said this on their juror questionnaire, and then you know they said that. I, of course, responded with no. They all said they could be fair and impartial jurors. They all answered the questions appropriately that we asked. They may have had an opinion. They may have had preconceived notions. They said they were willing to set them aside and base their verdict solely on the evidence in this case in these four walls. However, Judge Wamsley took some time, came back on the bench and said, while there's a prima facie case of racial discrimination based on the numbers— The defense has provided race-neutral reasons for each of these potential jurors for their strikes, and I'm not going to reseat any of them. And that's within his discretion to do. The thing is, Batson is tough. And the reason Batson's tough is because if the judge does reseat a juror or more than one juror, they're basically saying, counsel, you have lied to me. I don't believe you. What you just said to me, you made up. And I'm going to receipt this juror because I truly believe you struck them because of racial reasons or gender reasons or whatever. And that's hard to do because you're basically calling a lawyer a liar. I can see the reasoning in that, but it makes me wonder
0: how would a judge ever
1: reseat? And that's the question with Batson, right. because what Batson really does is it says to the judge, you're saying that this attorney has now lied to the court for their reason for striking this juror and that that attorney's real motive in getting that person off is the color of their skin or their gender or some other reason. And you're putting it on the record when you do that. So how in the world would a judge ever be able to do that? And that is a fundamental flaw with Batson.
0: Alan, your experience with Wadir was different being in federal court. And I understand that Judge Moon did the questioning. Yes. As the plaintiff's attorney, in such a big case with so much overlay. How did you all feel about that?
2: Given that two of the defendants were representing themselves, we were comfortable with the judge doing the questioning.
0: Meaning that those two individuals would not get to question the jury directly. Correct. Understood. And how many jurors did you go through?
2: I think uh, maybe it was 120.
0: Okay. That's a lot in two days. Yeah.
2: We had four panels from which the jury was selected, and he sat 12 jurors. I think our case, the jury selection benefited a lot from the juror questionnaire. It was 16 pages. There were a lot of questions they got at, you know, a range of the political, social attitudes. They asked about attitudes or concerns about racism or discrimination against blacks, whites, Jews, They asked about the media exposure, asked about views about Black Lives Matter, asked about views on Confederate statues. So there were a lot of different ways that we got a feel for the jurors.
0: And after the strikes were done, how did you feel about the jury?
2: I think we were comfortable with the jury. I mean, remember, our jury was anonymous. Sure. Everyone was masked in the courtroom. The normal kind of opportunity for communication that we all get as trial lawyers with jurors was really not possible. The jurors were spread out in the public section of the courtroom so that they could be six feet apart. So some of the jurors were in the back row. So it was very hard to have a normal kind of eye relationship communication with jurors and to read body language a lot of that was just not possible you know all of those factors made it a very different experience of the jury as a trial lawyer than anything that i had ever done before
0: you cross-examined michael hill i did everything that led up to him being a defendant let's say in this lawsuit was vile and a lot of it was based on social media. Is that
2: true? Yeah, social media and the publication of materials for the League of the South, which he's the president.
0: Tell us about your preparation for his cross-examination.
2: Well, I had taken his deposition. The preparation for the deposition and the cross-examination trial are very similar. I found every piece of written material that we could find that he had written. And I read it all. His organization, League of the South, does their own podcast. I listened to all of his podcasts and organized, you know, all of this material in chronological order to see what kind of evolution attitude or whatever there was. There was also an enormous amount of publicity about Unite the Right and the rally and then the death of one of the pedestrian counter protesters, Heather Heyer. So all of these defendants were very active in social media after the events. Dr. Hill himself, a couple of podcasts where he was giving his version of what happened. And there was an abundance of evidence about what he wanted to accomplish at Charlottesville. And then a lot of conversations and comments that he made after kind of admitting what he had accomplished and what they had all accomplished. So once you get all of that then you know you organize an examination to target what you need jury to hear to prove the case and do just that and shut it down. And that's what I did.
0: At trial I think I heard you say this Mr. Hill sort of admitted that he was a racist?
2: Yes. And an anti-Semite.
0: And an anti-Semite. Did that come as a surprise to you when he did it at trial?
2: No. I mean, in the case of Dr. Hill, he had publicized what he called the Pledge of Allegiance, and it was put out on the website of the League of the South. And he said, I am a racist, an anti-Semite, a homophobe, an Islamophobe, and any other phobe that, you know, would seek to destroy my people. So I had it there in black and white. He actually proudly said, and I'm that way to this day and proud of it. Wow. There are words to that effect.
0: The admission is bad for the elements of the cause of action, but perhaps you gain some kind of credibility with the jury?
2: You know, I think their trial strategy was all about the violence and taking on that the violence was racially motivated as well as challenging the uh, inclusion of James Field's car attack as part of the conspiracy. All of the defendants at one level or another were proud about their racist views and their anti-Semitic views, but they couched it in terms of this is their ideology for the white ethno-state and their You know, political views of white nationalism. So they didn't present it in the words of hatred in the way I think jurors understand it and all of us understand it.
0: Wow. Linda, you cross examined Travis McMichael. Yes. The defendant who actually pulled the trigger and committed the murder. Yes. Were you all expecting him to testify?
1: We planned in advance. Thinking all three may testify. We did not know. The defense doesn't have to tell us. We get to tell them, hey, here's our list of witnesses. Here's who we're going to put up. we the state. But we divided things up. There were three of us on the team. Larissa Olivier took William Roddy Bryan. And so her job was to get to know all about him, all about the people in his life, his social media, his text messages, and everything in anticipation of him testifying. And Mr. Bryan had also given numerous statements to the police at the scene on body cam, a couple hours later at the police station. And then after the McMichaels were arrested, he agreed with his attorney, Kevin Goff, to meet with GBI agent Seacrest on two different occasions and actually took him on a ride through the neighborhood To the best of his recollection, of course, in May, homicide happened February 23rd of 2020. So this is May. I believe this was either the 15th or the 19th. He was trying to do his best to remember, well, I went here and I went there, and this is what I did, and point out the locations for Special Agent Seacrest. So we knew some statements were going to come in. They were admissions of a party opponent. They're the statements of the defendants. But we didn't know if Mr. Bryan was going to testify or not for himself. So that was Larissa's job. Paul Camarillo's job was to get to know Travis McMichael and get to know his service record because they served us with his service record in the Coast Guard. We also, you know, Paul did a great job. He got to know all of his social media, uh, his text messages, all that kind of stuff. So I had Greg McMichael and Greg McMichael had served in the Navy and then he had become a law enforcement officer for a couple of years and then he became an investigator at the district attorney's office. And a lot of people said, yeah, I know him because he would show up at the courthouse and hand out subpoenas. And that's how they knew him, um, but I was prepared to cross-examine him if he took the stand. But as uh, the defense did their openings, we became very aware that Travis McMichael was the one who was going to testify. And then, based on Greg McMichael's attorney's, you know, opening statement, it became clear he was not going to be the one testifying. And then, Mr. Bryan, you know, Mr. Goff basically got up there and went, "No, my client's not testifying." So at that point, we knew where we needed to focus. So eventually, we knew that Travis McMichael was gonna go ahead and testify. And even though Paul had been the one who was really focused in on Travis McMichael and everything, we got together as a team and made a team decision that I would be the one to take on that cross-examination.
0: I watched your cross-examination, I think it was part of it, whatever I could find on YouTube. What was interesting to me is it didn't seem like, from what I saw, you were affected at all about the cameras, the weight on your shoulder about what this case means for our country. And you were just doing your job. And I don't mean just as if to diminish it at all, but that's what was so impressive to me. And as a trial attorney, it makes me so proud to be a part of this profession, but also in awe of you guys who can have these kinds of results. It is such an important piece of the puzzle because you're really trying to get to the truth through the defendant's own words. And with respect to Travis McMichael, I watched him, and he kept saying things like totality of the circumstances and phrases like this, which seemed strange to me that he would be saying that. So tell us why you think he said things like that.
1: He had been incredibly well-prepared by his attorneys. But was it well-prepared? Or did you turn it around on him in close? If you think I turned around in close, then I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) What I did with the cross examination was I attempted to put it in two buckets, which I always do. Okay. So for me, there's a one pager. What is the point I'm going to make in closing? Okay. And how am I going to make that point based on what this defendant is going to give me during the cross examination? And like Alan, Sometimes they'll give you the answer you want right away, and you're like, thank you, and you sit down. And it's hard to do that, though.
0: It's hard to sit down. I know it shouldn't be, because you're ready for the fight. That's the skill of it, though, right? The skill of it is to sit down and not to complete the outline. And that's hard.
2: I think experience teaches you that. And lawyers that haven't done as many cross-examinations of hostile witnesses often don't have a sense of when they have what they need. And sit down. But the more times you get jammed as you're growing up <laughs> trying cases, the more you learn. And, you know, we're still all human. So in depositions, I still, you know, from time to time ask one too many questions, but you don't do that in trial in a courtroom. You're generally well-organized trained. You have the discipline to sit down.
0: I want to ask you both about the pressure of the publicity of these cases. Alan, these were very high profile. Did you change your routine? How did you prepare for this? And I'm not talking about you're preparing for your cross-examination or your witnesses. I'm talking about mentally, how did you prepare to be in a trial like this with such emotional aspects to it?
2: Well, first, I mean... For me, I was one of six trial lawyers. We were three firms. We had a great team effort. The three firms, we were all working together in one location. We helped one another. And so I think that reduced in some respects the pressure that was on all of us. But at the end of the day, you're trying a case and it's witness by witness. It's Same kind of evidence issues, irrespective of what the underlying facts are about. It's making motions before the judge, answering legal questions with the judge. You get intellectually into the professional challenge of trying a case. And this case, because we were all together and there was so much collaboration, you know, it helped. Some of the defendants and supporters you know, in commentary after the trial, made comments about my lawyering and about my being a Jewish lawyer and bringing that personality into the courtroom. That's their view or that's the kind of the political kind of spin that they want. I think I was every bit the lawyer cross-examining them as I've been in as a criminal defense lawyer trying cases or is trying fraud cases as a plaintiff's lawyer or is a defendant's lawyer in other kind of high profile or contested fact cases? So I think for me, it was the same Alan Levine in all these cases.
0: Linda, how did the publicity in the Mont Arbory case
1: affect you? I tried not to let it affect me at all. How? By lying to myself really (laughs) effectively. That's what I'm looking for. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so first off, I tend to be a very, very focused person. I am one of those people who can shut out the rest of the world. And I do get pushback because that also means I'm rude and abrupt and ignoring other things that are going on because I am so laser focused on what I am doing. So... For me, when the case first started out, there were certain hurdles that we needed to get through. And those hurdles included looking at all those pieces of evidence and then analyzing the law. Because as you know, going forward, the indictment is the most important thing. You've got to bring that indictment. Those are the charges you have to prove. So we went down to Brunswick and in June of 2020, obtained the indictment for the charges of murder, felony murder, Aggravated assault with the shotgun, aggravated assault with the pickup trucks, false imprisonment and criminal attempt at false imprisonment, because we had false imprisonment on Holmes Drive, where Mr. Arbery was murdered, and we had criminal attempt at false imprisonment over on Burford Drive, where Mr. Um, Bryan and the McMichaels first trapped Mr. Arbery, and Mr. Bryan tried to run him off the road with his pickup truck and hit him. So that's why we had that in the indictment that way. One of the main things that I do when I approach any case, especially a homicide case, is I analyze all of the evidence first. What is the evidence and what is it telling me and what is it showing me? Because that evidence is what's gonna build the indictment. In order to go forward to trial, as a prosecutor, you've gotta make sure that your charging document is appropriate. You can't overcharge, but you also can't undercharge. You also can't erroneously charge. You've got to have the right charges that match your evidence and the facts of the case. And in addition, you need to determine, well, what are the defenses going to be in this case? And in this case, that came directly from the mouths of the defendants and their interviews. So when we went forward, we were very, very focused on the fact that we felt the facts were on our side based on their statements, based on what we knew from the scene, based on the video itself. We knew the law was on our side. Murder, felony murder, the aggravated assaults. We knew that they really couldn't claim self-defense. They were going to try, but that was going to fail based on their actions. And we knew we were going to be able to rebut the citizen's arrest. And so focusing in on those sort of foundational elements, everything was built upon those things, the evidence and the facts of the case and the law that we knew that Judge Wormsley was going to give the jury. So a lot of my focus, because my philosophy is ABC, always be closing. That's what you should be doing. Every single thing is about that closing argument How do you get to that closing argument? For the state, it's always the closing argument is the law, which is your indictment and the law that the judge is going to give. And in this case, I also then had to focus in on the defenses because it was no secret. The defense was out there being interviewed by the media and podcasts telling me exactly what the defense was. They also did me the favor of telling me what I was going to say, which I think was strategically a big mistake on their part. They kept going, well, the state's going to say this and the state's going to say that. And I would turn to Paul and Larissa going you know, I'm not going to say that, right? That's not what we're going to do. And they're like, I know. (laughs) So, But they at least gave their case away, which was self-defense. And that's what the defendants all said at the time. Travis and Gregory Michael, it was all, he attacked my son. He attacked my son. That's what Gregory Michael kept telling them, which is like, people are looking at this video going, excuse me, where? The guy who was running away from you for five minutes and ran around the truck to get away from your shotgun-toting son is the one who attacked your son as he was pointing the shotgun at the unarmed jogger, but that's where they were going with it. So we have this self-defense case, which is what we think. Problem is, in Georgia, you can't start it, which is what the McMichaels and Mr. Bryan did. You also cannot be committing any felonies. And they were committing all kinds of felonies. They tried to hit him and, you know, kill him with the pickup truck. They pointed a shotgun at him. They were falsely imprisoning him and trying to falsely imprison him first at the other street. So here you have all these felonies they've committed, and then they kill him. So they've got to come up with a defense. And it's not something they said. Not once did they say, we were trying to make a citizen's arrest. Not once at the scene or in their interviews later did anybody say we were placing him under arrest or that they even saw him commit a crime. Their whole thing was, well, he must have committed some crime because he was running through our neighborhood. Why don't you law enforcement officers go out there and figure out what crime Mr. Arbery must have committed? Because they hadn't seen him commit any crime that day. So basically went through all the law on citizen's arrest, went through all the law on self-defense, wrote up the briefs, responded to their motions. And having done that legwork in advance, having to do that in December through January of 2021, move up into the motions and argue them in May, all of those things helped me and helped the team get to the place we needed to be for ABC, always be closing. So even though I knew people were paying attention and watching. For me, it was such a long process that by the time we actually got to trial, I told my team, I don't wanna hear about it. I don't wanna hear what the media is saying. I don't wanna hear what anybody else is saying. Unless someone has actual constructive criticism, I'll take constructive criticism. You know, if somebody's seeing something I'm doing that's bad, tell me about it. If somebody sees something I could do better, tell me about it, I'm open, you know, because I want justice for the family. Hey, this isn't about me, it's about justice for the Arbery family. And if somebody sees something tell me, you know, but I went in every day with Paul and Larissa and we were totally 100% focused on the case, getting justice for the victims and making sure that we did the best job we could to put that evidence up so that we could be really good for our closing argument. And so I convinced myself that three people were probably watching this and one was my sister and, you know, she (laughs) liked me, so that was going to be fine. That's what I told myself.
0: Alan, I had read and knew that a lot of defense attorneys, maybe some of them, had used a lot of slurs, a lot of racial slurs during the trial. And I'd read that maybe the motive behind that was to desensitize the jury. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: At least one of the defense lawyers said after the trial that an effort had been made to desensitize the jury with... All of the racial and anti-Semitic comments throughout and the use of vile words, I personally don't see that. We did have an expert witness, uh, Professor Lipstadt, who kind of took the jurors to school on what anti-Semitism is and its roots and its manifestations. And she made a point of saying that one of the ways that people, anti-Semites communicate is through jokes and camouflaging and things. So... All of that actually came out in the courtroom, particularly the two defendants that were representing themselves did just about everything that Professor Lipstadt said anti-Semites do. But, you know, it was a courtroom that was just filled with hate speech every day and violence, and it was uncomfortable. You know, we would leave the court and look at one another and say, did we really just sit in a courtroom today with... All of this filthy, vulgar hate speech. But we did. At the end of the day, I don't think it worked on the jury. I think the jurors saw and found racially motivated violence intending to interfere and actual assault of some of them. They found on the state assault claims also.
0: Linda, much has been noted for your case about how you really didn't emphasize race. Was that a conscious decision?
1: Yes, we made a conscious decision not to put racial animus evidence before the jury. Number one, my elected Flynn Brody did not want to make this an us versus them case. He also didn't want this case to be all about race because it wasn't. This was a murder. This was a murder with a shotgun. And it was a vigilante situation more than anything else. Was the vigilanteism? Motivated by racial animus? In my opinion, yes. But in the state of Georgia, the state does not need to prove motive or premeditation. The state only needs to prove intent, intent to commit the act that is against the law. So there was no reason for the state to attempt to prove something it didn't need to prove in its case. And of course, if I had failed to prove it sufficiently, because the state has the burden of proving it beyond a reasonable doubt, if I had failed to prove that sufficiently, there's a chance we could have lost or had a hung jury or alienated, one, two, three jurors, and why do that when it's unnecessary in order to prove the homicide? If everyone were green, what the McMichaels and Brian did was still illegal.
0: Do either of you have thoughts on the potential appeals of your cases or the likelihood of success on appeal, Alan?
2: No, I wouldn't comment on that matter. Okay.
0: I understand that
1: you're still in post-trial briefing. Yes. Okay. Linda, thoughts? Well, the defendants have all filed their motions for new trial. So in the state of Georgia, within 30 days, you have to motion for a new trial. Standard procedure. Everybody files those placeholders. Uh, Then we have a status hearing in about 180 days. So that will probably take place in July or August of this year. And it will simply be a status to determine, defendants, have you hired appellate counsel? I don't know when the transcript is going to be completed, but this is all sort of standard procedure. I have no idea what issues these new appellate attorneys that are representing the defendants will use for the appeal. My intention is to handle the appeal. So we'll see what happens.
0: Both of you have spent a lot of years in your respective careers, either in public service, Linda, in your prosecutorial role. And Alan, I know that you were an assistant U.S. attorney. How many years were you assistant U.S. attorney? Five. Five years. And you're currently the chairman of the Jewish Theological Seminary as well. I'm hoping that we have some young lawyer listeners, some younger listeners. What's the importance of public and community service as a lawyer? And Alan, I'll start with you.
2: I think it's part and parcel of being a lawyer. I think it makes you a better lawyer. I also think that lawyers know better than any other kind of profession or livelihood the importance of the rule of law and our system of justice and should appreciate the importance of maintaining it, preserving it, protecting it. So I think all young lawyers should be involved one way or another in Pro bono work and public service, so that becomes part of their careers. I feel very strongly about that.
0: And you've felt very fulfilled by that. Yes. I want to add, of course, that you and the team on the Charlottesville trial, that was pro bono work. Yes. Linda, you're a career prosecutor. How important do you think? those roles are in the role of public service.
1: They're incredibly important. And I have noticed a trend which I'm so glad you asked me about this because I've noticed a trend where a lot of young attorneys come to a district attorney's office or a US attorney's office and they come for 3 years for the experience of the trial work. And they leave for whatever reason and often I regret to say it's probably money or government employees and the problem becomes that career prosecutor. Where is he or she these days? Because what we're finding is there are a lot of career prosecutors, such as myself at this age. But we're missing our 35 to 45, 35 to 50-year-olds who started out as prosecutors when they were 25, 27 years old and then stuck with it. And that can be a number of factors. It can be economic factors, which I think is probably what it is. A government job used to carry with it a lot of benefits as far as retirements, pensions, that kind of thing, health care, a lot of other benefits that came with sticking with a job where you honestly are making 50 percent of what you could be making in the private sector. But it's so important that we have those career prosecutors. And the reason for that is, and I've told everyone this. It's not like I walked into this like some genius or something. The reason I was able to do what I was able to do is because I've been through so many trials. I've been up against really good defense attorneys who really taught me something. And it's not the cases you win. It's the cases you lose where you really go, okay. That was a giant mistake on my part, or that defense attorney was much more clever than I thought they were going to be, or I failed to really explain this to the jury in a way that they were going to understand, or I put that person on that jury I never should have put on that jury. But you don't learn those things in three to five years and then walk into a case like the state of Georgia versus McMichael, McMichael, and Brian. It is that career prosecutor, it is that person who has put in years and years of time and effort making mistakes and learning that allows you to kind of use your discretion to go ahead and do the right thing. And that's the other thing that I find the public doesn't always understand, that prosecutors dismiss cases all the time. Prosecutors look at a case and go, I can't prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't have the evidence. Or they go and interview somebody and go, you're lying to me. What am I going to do? You're obviously lying. I'm not bringing charges against someone based on lies that you've said for whatever reason you've had. The prosecutor is the one who has the power to go ahead and make those charging decisions that are the right charges in the indictment. The prosecutor is the one who has the ability to reduce it. The prosecutor is the one who says, listen, this person is not— a drug kingpin. This person is addicted to drugs. We need to put them into a diversion court because it's going to be better for everybody if we get them off the drugs, not incarcerate them. And that's what the prosecutor does. They make those decisions. They look at the society and say, okay, who are we afraid of? Because they are willing to harm children. What do we do with that person? We prosecute them to the fullest and we put them away. But who are we mad at? And when I say mad at, please, please stop hurting yourself and the ones you love. Please get yourself together because we want you to be successful. We want you to be a self-sufficient, productive member of society. And if we can help you in the criminal justice system get there, we're going to do that for you by getting you into a veterans court, a drug court, a domestic violence court, any sort of court that will help you not come out with some sort of criminal record but allow you to move forward with your life, you know, productively. And so that's really the role of the prosecutor. And I'm not sure that messaging is getting out to young people. The messaging I feel that the media portrays is all prosecutors do is want to lock up the wrong person. I don't want to lock up the wrong person. I do not. I, that's the last thing I want to do. I want to make sure that the person that I am going forward against is the responsible party. That is the most important thing because this is all a search for the truth. So for those of you who are listening, if you are young or even if you are old and looking for your second fabulous career, please consider prosecution because you do have the power to really impact people's lives, especially the lives of victims of crimes. And it's
0: important to point out that you had spent, I think, 17 years in the Fulton County DA's office and had in... August of 2019? Yes. Moved over to Call County into the appellate division.
1: Yes. And you didn't stay there very long, did you, Linda? No, no, no. Once again, I'm, I'm a government employee. You don't just have one job. I'm still the head of the appellate division and was during the entire trial because that's the way the government works. So the answer is yes, I moved on. I was exhausted. I had done 17 years. I'd been trying primarily homicide cases. And it is intense and traumatic and It is sometimes the saddest thing you've ever done to try a homicide case, and there's two people behind you. One's the defendant's mother, and the other's the victim's mother, and they're the only people in that courtroom, and the media's not there, and no one cares, and that is heartbreaking. But you still want justice because if he's not held accountable for his actions of murdering this young man, he's going to do it again because he's going to feel enabled, and that's why we have to do what we do. But after a while, it was time for me to move on and move to appeals. And I was given the opportunity to move to the Cobb County District Attorney's Office as the head of their appellate section. There were three of us. And it was great for you six, You kicked eight eight your months. feet back, <laughs> put
0: your feet on your desk, and got all kinds of comfortable. And then five minutes later, you got a phone call.
1: I did. I got the <laughs> phone call. And I was put on the team, which I was honored. And I was appreciative because at the time I was put on the team, I was going to be the appellate attorney and do the motions work. So I was going to get to do the brain stuff that I really, really liked. But unfortunately, we lost uh, our lead prosecutor for other reasons that had nothing to do with this case. And I was made the lead. And that plunged me right into only working on that case. So what is next?
0: I know this has been a lot, a lot of time running up to it, a lot of time in trial. It's only a few months after. Alan, what's next for you?
2: Well, I've been senior counsel at Cooley since I reached retirement age. I have active representations in civil and some criminal investigations. So I'm back doing those. And I'm also taking on a position back at Legal Aid as president of Legal Aid. So I'm more involved, again, in the management of Legal Aid Society. So I'm back doing what I do.
0: Well, thank you for that. And Linda? Linda? You're back to the appellate
1: desk? Yes, they didn't give me a break. They immediately, <laughs> I had to go argue before the Georgia Supreme Court in Justin Ross Harris' case, the hot car baby death case. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, so we had to do those oral arguments. I got back to the office, and, and of course, we had to do it on Zoom because, you know, but it's been great. The Georgia Supreme Court has been doing a really great job with the uh, Zoom oral arguments.
0: Okay, here's my question. Do you think that your verdicts have helped race relations in our country?
2: I think that um, racist attitudes and anti-Semitic attitudes are not healthy in our society. And I think that every instance that presents itself by way of litigation or non-litigation to call the kind of conduct out, to educate people in the country that this kind of attitude exists, and to actually use the court's to hold those people accountable for what they said and did, I think that's a very positive thing. And it's not the only thing to do, but I think when the opportunity presents itself, either the government should be doing something or injured persons should be doing something with the benefit of lawyers. So I think it's a good thing.
1: Linda? I am really, really hopeful that this verdict says to all of America that the criminal justice system works Sometimes it works imperfectly, but we get there. And the jury system works because when a juror takes that oath, they take it seriously. All of our jurors paid close, close attention to the evidence that we presented. They paid attention to Travis McMichael when he testified and to my cross-examination. They really listened to Judge Walmsley when he gave them the law. They were invested and It's that kind of stand-up citizen who really steps up and does their civic duty that really makes sure that our criminal justice system works. And I believe it does. And I believe in the jury system. And so if there's anything that I think it helps is that that distrust of the criminal justice system, I'm hoping that this is an example of it does work. And if you really, truly want it to work even better, become a part of it.
0: Alan Levine, Linda Demikowski, thank you so much for your time today. On behalf of the American College and all of our listeners, I really appreciate your insight and your willingness to share your stories with us today. So thank you.
2: Thank you for inviting
0: us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.